Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. We really do appreciate you um, getting here in the morning and being here to welcome our guest speaker. It's great to see you all. I know we haven't had grand rounds in a couple of months, so we're glad to be back. Um, so just a quick announcement about CME before we get started. This program is provided by Georgia Heart Institute with support from our industry partners. The planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with commercial interests. Through grants and research support, the presenter has a relationship with Amarin, Amgen, and Ringer Ingelheim. These relationships do not influence today's presentation. To claim CME credits today, please answer the survey evaluation. If you are viewing online, the link will be posted into the chat. Those attending in person will receive the link or QR code at the end of this session. If you have a question for the presenter, please hold until the Q&A segment. Online viewers may type questions into the chat and then we'll read them at the end. And now I'd like to ask Dr. Burkle to introduce our guest speaker, Dr. Watson. Thank you, Suzanne. Good morning. It's a great pleasure to introduce my old friend, Dr. Carol Watson. Uh, Dr. Watson is professor of medicine and cardiology at the Geffen uh, School of Medicine at UCLA. She holds the John Matsiota term chair in medicine and was honored to be named the cardiologist of the year by the California chapter of the American College of Cardiology in 2017. Dr. Watson received her undergrad degree from Stanford University and graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Medical School. She also holds a PhD in physiology from UCLA. Uh, she completed her internal medicine residency and her cardiology fellowship program at UCLA and was also chief fellow at the same institution. Uh, Dr. Watson is currently the director of the Barbara Streisand Women's, Health, Women's Heart Health Program at UCLA, co-director of the preventive cardiology program at UCLA, something that we both hold close to our hearts, and director of this UCLA fellowship program in cardiovascular diseases as well. So Dr. Watson uh, is also a principal investigator of multiple NIH trials and serves in multiple NIH steering committees. So it's an honor for me to present Dr. Watson, who will be uh, speaking on coronary calcification, basic mechanisms, research applications, and clinical utility. Carol. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. I Thank you, Dr. Burkle, for this invitation. And um, he and I go... We go back a ways, and we were really two of the pioneers of preventive cardiology and preventive cardiology. So I'm grateful for your friendship and your advocacy. And thank you for your research. Let me tell you about the story of the last 20 years of my life. This this gentleman who was a first a cardiology fellow like you, Sia, and um, to now because I have been involved in coronary calcification in some way, shape, or form for all of that time. So these are my disclosures and nothing that I say today will be affected by this. I want to start by talking about how I even got into this, an observation, and it led to a question. And that question led to the next 20 years of my life. Um, first, as a basic scientist, unraveling the molecular mechanisms of vascular calcification. Then I really decided that I needed to look more broadly at populations to figure out how vascular calcification and coronary calcification 
can be used as a research tool and as a clinical tool. And then I wanna finish up with some future questions. So, well, first there's this observation and that observation came from my mentor back then and still to this day, Dr. Linda Deemer. Linda had always said, you know, she was a biomechanical engineer who then became a physiologist. And she looked at a lot of pathology specimens because she was interested in the mechanical properties. And she said, you know, one of the things that really influences the mechanical properties of the, the atherosclerotic plaque is calcium. You have this big lipid fluffy core and right next to it, you have this big hard rock of calcium that's a really unstable interface. Like that's gonna influence a lot of the, the plaque um, stability. So she said, you know, I'm really interested, like what is this calcium doing here? And she said, you know, looked through the research and for centuries people had seen that. And they said, oh, it's just a, a passive process of aging. No, you know, no one, it's not important. Don't worry about it. But she said, you know what? I think there's something there. And when she looked at more and more specimens, she actually noted some real stark similarities between vascular calcification and osteogenic tissues like bone and cartilage. So she said, you know, maybe there's really something more here. It's not just passive. Maybe there's something active going on. So these are some of the, the slides that she showed me initially. You, these are actually specimens from pathology sections of atherosclerotic plaques you can see what looks exactly like wavy amorphous bone there, things, cells that look like cartilage, things that look like fat. She could see all different cell types there and things that look like bone marrow. So she said, you know, it's hard to imagine that you just passively lay down calcium in these tissues form. So I think there's something there. And then she said, I could even see things that look like multinucleated osteoclasts, which suggests that there's active remodeling of the calcification in atherosclerotic plaques. So it's not just that this is a passive deposition of calcium. I think there's really something active there. So the next step, and that's where I came in, was trying to unravel the molecular mechanisms. So I was a, a first-year cardiology fellow as part of the STAR program at UCLA. That's a program where you do your cardiology fellowship and get a PhD at the same time. So I asked Linda to be my mentor and decided to carry out my PhD under her. And I was gonna look at the molecular and cellular mechanisms of vascular calcification. So Linda Deemer was my primary mentor. I also worked with the postdoc, Christina Bostrom at the time, who was just a post, not just a postdoc, she was a postdoc, but then she subsequently also went on to do her cardiology fellowship. And Yen Tintet, who was a PhD scientist still in the lab to this day. So my first job was, she said, find me a cell-based model of vascular calcification. So I was like, okay, not knowing anything about what I was doing. We started by looking at um, bovine aortic smooth muscle cells and human aortic smooth muscle cells. Via our heart transplant program, we had a lot of access to human aortic smooth muscle cells and we got some bovine aortic smooth muscle cells. So we just cultured them to see if any of these cells were gonna calcify. And it turns out that many people had seen for many years that whenever you have these cultures over time, they start to form these nodules. 
And again, a lot of people said, oh, you can tell when your cells are getting old, they start to form these nodules and you just throw them away. But we didn't throw them away. We actually looked at them and we stained these nodules and they were staining brightly for calcification. So we're like, that's interesting. And one of the things you could see was that if you start with a um, very you know, stable, smooth muscle cell culture, undifferentiated over there on the left, you could see when they were about to form nodules. So these are stained with Boncasa looking at calcium. So all cells have calcium. So you see a very diffuse you know, staining of calcium. Then when the cells start to condense and then they go on to form nodule formation, you can see where the calcification and the Boncasa staining gets more intense. And then these calcified nodules form. So one of the first things we did was said, okay, is this, anything else turning on at the same time that this calcification is going on. And we were really, really interested in classic bone proteins. So the first thing we looked at was alkaline phosphatase. Classic bone protein, it's, you know, it is seen in other tissues as well, but it's always seen in calcifying tissues. So you could also see where this calcification and calcified nodules were about to form by the turning on of alkaline phosphatase, in the pre-nodule stain, in the nodule stain, and then when you get really mature nodules with a lot of calcium, you see a lot of alkaline phosphatase staining. But still, we weren't sure, is this just amorphous calcium or is this more like bone? Well, bone is, you know, the calcium is not just calcium, it's hydroxyapatite. It's a very specific type of bone. So we wanted to see if the calcification in these nodules had any appearance of hydroxyapatite, and that's what we found. So again, this is just looking at a section through a nodule and stained for von Kassa for calcium. You can see the calcium there. We could take an x-ray of the nodules and you see a little skeleton. And then we did electron microprobe analysis to see exactly the mineral constituents of the nodules. And they actually had calcium and phosphate for us in the exact same molecular ratios as you would see in hydroxyapatite. We were getting more and more convinced. So now we wanted to see if, as we saw these cells differentiate from undifferentiated to pre-nodule to nodule forming cells, if we could see bone specific proteins turn on. So the next thing we did was look for collagen types. Now, if you look at vascular smooth muscle cells, they have collagen type one. That's their predominant collagen type. Um, so I'm sorry, collagen uh, type four. So what we saw that if you have calcifying cells, they have predominantly collagen type one. And that's the type of collagen that you predominantly see in calcifying tissues like bone and cartilage. Collagen type four is the type of collagen that you see in basement membranes of all sorts of cell types. So it was more commonly seen in smooth muscle cells. And what we could see is if you had a rapidly calcifying um, smooth muscle cell culture, you would see a lot of collagen type one. If you had slowly calcifying cells, you didn't see any, or non-calcifying cells, which were presumably just smooth muscle cells, you didn't see any also. We also looked at fibronectin, also pretty specific for bone and calcified tissues like bone and cartilage. You would see a lot of fibronectin in the rapidly calcifying cells, 
a little bit in the slowly calcifying cells and very little in the non-calcifying cells. Then if you look at collagen type four, the type that's seen primarily in smooth muscle cells, you really wouldn't see much in the rapidly uh, calcifying cells. You would see a little bit in the slowly calcifying cells and you would see a lot in the non-calcifying cells. So we could see this turning on and off of bone specific collagen types as these cells were calcifying. Then we started looking at more and more specific bone type proteins, osteopontin. That's a real classic um, protein that's seen in really only calcifying tissues. It's kind of never seen in smooth muscle cells. And so we wanted to see if we could see that in our calcifying cells. And we also saw that. So again, if you just look at smooth muscle cells, you just don't see any osteopontin. But if you look in different clones of our calcifying vascular cells, you would see a lot of osteopontin. So again, getting more and more specific. And then the sinequinon and probably one of our most important papers came when Christina and I found bone morphogenetic protein two in calcifying vascular cells. This had never been seen in vascular cells before. So it's a part of the TGF beta superfamily. It's well known and deserve both bone and cartilage formation expressed by a variety of cell types, um, including cells of atherosclerotic lesions. That was new, had not been shown before. Um, and we showed that, and that's one of the big advances that our lab made. Um, so both BMP2 and BMP4 are inducers of inflammation and mineralization. So we felt that this is getting more and more specific now for bone-like tissues. So we used in, in situ hybridization to see if we could show um, signal for BMP2. And we saw if you had the negative control, you saw nothing. Um, the positive control, you see a lot. And then when we looked at our cell types, you could see a lot of BMP2 as well. So we were getting pretty convinced now that we had found a group of osteoblast-like cells that live in the artery wall. Um, this is something that had not been seen before, um, but we, because of, of Linda's observations that she would see these tissue types that looked at all the world, just like bone and cartilage, it made us look down this line. And so we said, okay, there are these cells here, but like why and what stimulates them? So the next step we said, let's look at for stimulatory proteins that can cause these vascular smooth muscle cells to change into osteoblast-like cells. Well, one of the first things we thought, you know, we're looking at an atherosclerotic plaque, what's big in plaque? Cholesterol. And we looked at regular old cholesterol, didn't see a lot. But when we looked at oxidized cholesterol and oxidized phospholipids, we did see a lot of stimulation. So oxidized phospholipids are, as you know, the sort of sine qua non of atherosclerosis. LDL alone doesn't do a lot of damage, but once you get oxidized LDL, that's where all the damage happens. So OxPAPC is one of the most prominent phospholipids in oxidized LDL. So we were able to show that this oxidized phospholipid specifically was the most potent inducer of nodule formation. So as we increased our concentration of OxPAPC, we increased the amount of nodule formation. And you could actually see that gra uh, graphically that the number of nodules is a nice biomarker for the amount of calcification. We could see that as we increase the amount of oxidized phospholipids, we'd see more and more nodules in each well. Was not seen in negative controls, 
or with non-oxidized cholesterol. So oxidized cholesterol did cause these nodules to form. We also saw that oxidized cholesterol induced alkaline phosphatase activity, and we saw that oxidized phospholipids induce collagen one synthesis, the type of collagen you see in bone forming tissues and, cal and calcified tissues, but um, not so much in collagen four. So here's looking at collagen one, in our negative controls, you would see, in our controls, you would just see a little bit of collagen one, but once you added the oxidized phospholipid, collagen one activity just took off. We also did some really interesting studies, and I'll come back to this later because it's a question I still have, which I never really got back to. We looked at a classic osteoblastic cell type, MC3T3E1 cells. So CBCs were our classic calcifying vascular cell type. MC3T3E1 cells are classic osteoblastic cell types. And what you see is in control cells not treated with anything, osteoblasts make a ton of collagen one. That makes sense. This is what you see in bone forming cells. When you expose them to oxidized phospholipids, they get a lot less collagen one. So this brought us to a question that we actually had always wanted to come back to, but haven't yet. You will always see this paradox between osteoporosis and vascular calcification. A lot of it is probably mediated by age, but the question becomes really why are tissues laying down calcium in the vasculature where you don't need it, while at the same time taking it away from the bone where you do need it? But that's a question that we still wanna come back to. Well, we found a lot of inducers of calcification. So oxidized phospholipids were the first we looked at, but we found that a lot of inflammatory mediators could do the same thing like TNF-alpha, oxidative stress, BMP2, the classic um, bone protein, MSX, which is a um, nuclear transcription factor, osteocalcin, alkaline phosphatase, RINC-L, osteoplatin, a lot of different things. But remember those early pictures I showed you where Linda was looking at pathology sections and she saw a bunch of different tissues that look like bone and cartilage and fat? One of the things we also thought, okay, we are finding these cells that have osteoblast-like uh, properties, but what if there really is more of a, just a mesenchymal kind of stem cell? These, these nascent cells in the artery wall that can tr really transform into a bunch of different cell types, not just bone, but maybe fat and maybe cartilage. So we started looking for mesenchymal stem cell cells and we looked via flow cytometry. So bone derived mesenchymal stem cells are known to be positive for CD29 and CD44 and negative for CD45 and CD14. So we wanted to see if our calcifying vascular cells had similar cell markers. And what we saw, if you look, we saw that um, the M1 cells are positive control, as you would expect, are positive for CD29 and CD44 and negative for CD45 and CD14. But the M2 cells, our calcifying vascular cells, we actually saw a very similar pattern. So we saw positive for CD29 and CD44, negative for CD14 and negative for CD45. 
So it really did make us think we were dealing with not just an osteoblast-like cell type in the artery wall, but maybe really just a mesenchymal cell, stem cell that could then transform into a number of different things given whatever stimulus you expose it to. Okay, so that was one of the things that we really were excited about. Because if you think about it, if you have this mesenchymal stem cell in the artery wall, that means a lot of different things could happen. And then maybe you could actually figure out how to modulate them and maybe get those cells to transform into things you really want them to do. That's something that's further down the line, but it does bring up some really exciting possibilities. And this is when we um, actually got a lot of press because this was really the first time that anyone had ever thought of vascular calcification as anything, but just this amorphous, very boring process. And again, that's me, Priya, as a first year fellow many years ago, but we were really excited because this was something new and different. Or was it? So if you look back through some of the really old pathology treatises, this is from Verka. It's from like 1880 or something like that. He basically wrote in this treatise um, that vascular calcification is quote unquote, an ossification of the arteries. So this is when he was using rudimentary or microscopes to look at this. He said, this is just like bone. So again, this is one of the things I want all the cardiology fellows to realize. Past his prologue, a lot of things that we think are new, like inflammation, the hot new thing. Well, a lot of people, a lot of many older pathologies and cardiologists had really thought of these things a long time ago. So one of the things that I then became interested in was using CAC, coronary artery calcification, as a research tool. So what a lot of investigators had shown was that the calcium identifies plaque. And in fact, that's really what we think the value of getting a CAC score is. It really does tell you one question. Is there atherosclerotic plaque there? Yes or no? And it's proportional typically to the amount of plaque. It doesn't tell you exactly where the plaque is or how stenotic it is or anything like that, but it tells you there's atherosclerotic plaque that's there. And the more calcium there is, the more plaque there is. So that was at the point where I was heavily ensconced in my basic science lab and I did love it, but I really needed to answer more questions. And the most of the questions I needed to answer required populations. So it was at that point that I sort of transitioned from basic science to translational and population science. And to do that, I used a, um, the power of the MESA study, the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. So MESA, this is a multi-center study sponsored by NHLBI, it's a longitudinal cohort study investigating the prevalence, correlates, and progression of subclinical cardiovascular disease. And one of the things, so I actually joined MESA um, after its inception, but one of the things that the um, initial investigators wanted to do was sort of update our Framingham knowledge base. So we know we use the Framingham database for so many things to predict atherosclerotic events and things like that. And we learned so much from Framingham, an incredibly important study, but it really is from a small town in Massachusetts, which didn't have a lot of ethnic diversity. And so they said, let's kind of 
update the database that we know and get a study that is about a quarter black, a quarter white, a quarter Asian, and a quarter Hispanic. So our job as the six US field centers was to recruit healthy men and women between the ages of 45 and 84, about 50% men and 50% women. And we wanted again, 25, 25, 25, 25%. We didn't exactly make those um, percentages, but we got 34% white, 28% African-American, 22% Hispanic and 12% Chinese. And these are the field centers. So UCLA is the only one on the West Coast. Everything else is Eastern. But we've all been working together to try to figure out some basic uh, population data on atherosclerosis. Now, the idea was to look at subclinical atherosclerosis and figure out how that related to atherosclerotic progression and events. And so the main subclinical atherosclerosis measures that were initially thought of in MESA were coronary artery calcium score CAC or carotid interval medial thickness. And when MESA was begun, nobody had any idea which one would be best. Both are non-invasive, both are fairly easily measured, both could be used widely. So the idea was to figure out which one was most predictive of future cardiovascular events. And CAC won by kind of a lot. So this is data from our very first seminal paper out of MESA looking at the hazard ratios for cardiovascular disease, coronary heart disease, and for each standard deviation increase in either coronary calcium or carotid IMT. So when looking at total cardiovascular disease that involves heart attack, stroke, heart failure events, things like everything, um, you could see that for each increment increase in coronary calcification, each standard deviation increase, there was about a two-fold increase in events. That looked pretty good. Um, for carotid IMT, it was only 1.2 and it wasn't um, as statistically significant. So we weren't as excited about that. Now, when looking at coronary heart disease specifically, coronary calcium really performs a lot better than carotid IMT. Um, so you can see for each standard deviation increase in coronary calcium score, there's about a 2.3-fold increase in coronary heart disease events. Interestingly, when you look at stroke, carotid IMT actually pre uh, predicted that better. So you could see that the for each standard deviation increase in carotid IMT, there's about a 1.4 increase in stroke events. For coronary calcium, it was only about 1.1, and it wasn't statistically significant. But because we were looking mostly at coronary heart disease events, that clearly won. Um, so we definitely came across coronary calcium as a really great predictor of cardiovascular events, especially coronary heart disease events. Um, again, IMT wasn't as good. Um, it was really, coronary calcium is really good for myocardial events. And interestingly, Carotid IMT actually prevent, predicts stroke events a little bit better. But we were interested in coronary heart disease, so that's where we um, put most of our energy. So then we really decide to use CAC as our research tool. So we can, you know, we can always wait for cardiovascular events to see who lives and dies and has cardiovascular events for an outcome. It just takes a long time. But if we use coronary calcium, we can get data a little earlier and probably as um, reliably. So one of the studies I wanna show you is the study we did 
using CAC as a research tool to figure out if air pollution is harmful for the cardiovascular system. So this is the study we did. The association between air pollution and coronary artery calcification within six metropolitan areas in the US, the six US field centers for MESA, um, a longitudinal cohort study. This was published in The Lancet. Now, the reason we care about air pollution is because of what we call PM 2.5, particulate matter 2.5. Those are those super, super, super tiny microparticles that get sucked deep down into your lungs. Um, their most common sources are roadways. And, and where I live in California, it's the ports, the big ships and things, but it can be found in all sorts of things like power plants, forest fires, which California is burning right now. Um, and even outdoor barbecues. I can tell you since doing this research, I just can't really enjoy the outdoor barbecues like I used to, because I realize that every time I'm there, what I'm doing is sucking these little tiny microparticles deep down into my lungs. So all of the um, major bigger particles get filtered out by all of your defense mechanisms. So that's good. But those tiny microparticles never get filtered out and they end up taking up residence and deep down into your lungs, which causes this inflammatory cascade. So again, larger particles deposited in the upper airway, nose and throat, they're just cleared out. Smaller particles though can penetrate deep into the lungs, they're retained there, or, and they may even enter the bloodstream. And these inflammatory stimuli have the capacity to elicit widespread inflammation far beyond the lungs, including in the cardiovascular system. So we, there had been some data before we started our study that long-term exposure to this fine particulate matter, PM2.5, and traffic traffic-related air pollutants, which mostly are PM2.5, were associated with cardiovascular risk. But most of these studies were of short duration. They were just a single point in time. Um, and there's, there's really interesting city variability. So we wanted to know um, if longitudinally you could see a relationship between the amount of PM2.5 and other pollutant exposures that people experience and their cardiovascular um, risk. So uh, again, wanted to test a priori, the association of air pollutant concentrations with progression of coronary calcium. We were still looking at carotid IMT at this point as well. So we looked at that as well. Spoiler alert, it didn't show anything, but um, we wanted to look at air pollutants of PM 2.5, the most important one we were interested in. But we also looked at nitrogen oxides, nitrogen dioxide and black carbon. And to do this, we used, utilized the MESA cohort. So we repeatedly measure CAC in almost 7,000 MESA participants, um, 2002, 2005, 2010. Common carotid IMT was measured twice in everybody um, between 2002 and 2010. And so we could look longitudinally. We then had to figure out how to do the monitoring. And that was really pretty tricky. We decided to do home outdoor monitoring and home indoor monitoring. We also tried to do personal monitoring with people wearing these little backpacks that had air monitoring. Turned out that nobody liked the backpack and nobody really wore them. So we had to abandon that part. But what we decided to do was to sample hundred homes in each city. You have to monitor them in different seasons. So for instance, in California, you have to monitor during forest fire season. In the East, you have to monitor during you know, winter season where you have all the furnaces going. Um, so we did that. And then 
that was 100 homes in each city. Then for indoor monitoring, we chose about 50 homes in each city. And again, in two different seasons, we asked them to choose whatever room most people con congregated in, the living room, the dining, whatever it is, just put your monitor there so we could see what the home indoor uh, pollutant levels were like. We um, collaborated with the air pollution monitoring group at USC to do this because monitoring is really pretty tricky. Um, so they were expert at doing this. And when you do it well, you can get these really, really rich geospatial maps of where your pollutants are. You can actually see to the, you know, the street, the house, exactly where the air pollutants are. One of the other really interesting things we did at UCLA was we wanted to um, just look at air pollution. Um, and so we enrolled sociodemographically matched participants, one from Venice, that's a really good air quality area right near the ocean, but still demographically similar to people in Riverside, which is right near um, the most polluted area in California, but the sociodemographics were about the same. So we wanted to figure out all things being equal, just the difference being the air pollution, can we see a difference? Um, one of the nice, so where we live in Southern California, the ocean breezes do a great job of, of clearing out air pollution if you happen to live near the ocean. So that's where Venice is. Riverside, so when the ocean breeze blows that air pollution in, it blows it to the San Gabriel Mountains and then it gets trapped. Riverside sits right at the San Gabriel Mountains. So all that air pollution gets blown in from the ocean, gets stuck by the mountains, and so it just sits there. So Riverside has some of the worst air quality in the country. Um, so we could see, again, these really, really rich maps of PM2.5 and nitrogen oxide concentrations in Mesa, and we could see by each state. So you could see Baltimore, then Winston-Salem, and the number of black dots are, are correlated with the amount of pollution. You can see Los Angeles down there to the left bottom, a lot of black dots. You can see New York City in the middle on the right, a lot of black dots. So that's for PM2.5, for nitrogen oxide, you can see similar maps. Then looking at it graphically, you can see again, the greatest population of PM2.5 was seen in California. The greatest population of nitrogen oxide was actually seen in New York, but California was very close. Nitrogen dioxide, also New York, California was close, and black carbon was about the same between California and um, New York. But what we were able to see is that for each increment and average PM2.5 concentration that a participant was exposed to, there was an increase in their coronary calcium score that was almost linear as you see the blue line above. Um, we saw an increase also for nitrogen oxide that was significant, but nitrogen dioxide and black carbon were not significant at all. Both PM2.5 and nitrogen oxide, the more air pollution, those pollutants you were exposed to, the more coronary calcium you had indicating higher cardiovascular risk. So in Mesa, um, CAC increased on average by 24 Eccleston units per year. Carotid IMT increased by about 12 microns per year. But as I said, carotid IMT was not specific, uh, not significant. So we didn't really look much further in that. 
So for PM2.5, for each five microgram per cubic millimeter increase in PM2.5, CAC increased 4.1 Atkinson units per year. And that was in that linear relationship as I showed you. Um, and nothing was really related to carotid IMT. So we didn't look at that further. The other thing we were able to see in um, NISA was looking at each one of these lines is an individual participant in MESA. And if you look over time of this follow-up, you can see there's a general trend for a reduction in average PM 2.5 levels. So it really does suggest that some of the policy initiatives are having some impact. Okay. And another study that I thought was really interesting using CAC was our study on HDL. So, you know, epidemiologically, HDL levels are inversely associated with coronary heart disease. So the higher your HDL, the lower your coronary risk, the lower your HDL, the higher your risk. But we've seen in many populations that HDLs are heterogeneous. So for instance, if you have HDL APOA1 Milano, they have really low HDL levels, but they never get heart disease. And we had seen in some of our cohort studies at UCLA, people with really high HDL levels, over 100, and they get a lot of vascular disease. And we've also seen that trials of raising HDL with drugs like niacin and fibrates have not been successful at all. So we wanted to know, our hypothesis was that HDL is not protective against atherosclerosis in everyone. And the individuals that we thought it would be least protective in were individuals with the metabolic syndrome. So what we did, we categorized the MESA cohort according to the presence or the absence of the metabolic syndrome. And then each group was further stratified by HDL level. We considered low HDL, HDL less than 40, intermediate HDL between 40 and 59, and high HDL, anything above 60. We then looked at them for their cardiovascular event rates. So not just CAC, but heart event rates. Um, and then we dissected a little bit further. So this is what we saw. Look first at the far left, the entire cohort. If you looked at the entire cohort, it looked kind of like what you expect to see when you think about HDL. If you had really low HDL, HDL is on 40, you had the highest event rates. If you had HDL that was intermediate, your event rate was lower. And what we were actually a little surprised about in the entire cohort, if your HDL was above 60, it didn't look like it was better. It just looked like it was the same as people who had sort of an average HDL. Now look all the way to the right, people who had no metabolic syndrome at all. And that was you know, the four classic metabolic syndrome parameters, dyslipidemia, um, insulin resistance, obesity, and high blood pressure. These people look like exactly like what you would see. HDL less than 40, highest event rate, HDL 40 to 59, intermediate event rates, and lower event rates if your HDL was greater than 60. So that looked like what we thought of as the classic HDL atherosclerosis relationship. Now look at the people in the middle of the metabolic syndrome. The first thing you see is they all have higher event rates than the others, and that makes sense. That's a high-risk cohort. What you see is HDL less than 40, very, very harmful, really high event rates much lower for that intermediate HDL group, 40 to 59. But then when you go to the HDL above 60, 
equally as high event rates. So that was really kind of the first time that we saw HDL that's high is not always helpful and it may be harmful. There since have been several communications showing the same thing, but this was really one of the first. So now this is looking at coronary heart disease events. When we looked at total cardiovascular events, we saw a very similar pattern. Again, if you look at the entire cohort, you see this inverse relationship. If you look at those without metabolic syndrome, a really strong inverse relationship. But in the middle group, the metabolic syndrome group, either low HDL, very high HDL, were associated with worse outcomes. Then when we looked at the Kaplan-Meier curves, you see sort of the same thing. So those who have um, HDL less than 40 are shown in blue. HDL 40 to 59 shown as green. HDL above 60 shown as red. So looking at the entire cohort, the worst survival is in the blue line, HDL less than 40. That makes sense. And the survival of those with HDL in the intermediate range or in the high range, about the same. Look to the right, the middle panel, people without metabolic syndrome, you see similar pattern. The blue line has the worst outcomes, HDL is 40, and similar outcomes in those with HDL in the mid-range and HDL above 60. But look over at the metabolic syndrome group, very different pattern. The worst outcomes are shown in the blue line as expected, but also the red line, the very high HDL patients. And the people in the intermediate HDL group did the best. That was really kind of, is very, very, very um, interesting and confusing to us. But as you all know, as I said, the metabolic syndrome is a component of, of four different things, dyslipidemia, insulin resistance, obesity, and high blood pressure. So we wanted to see what the relationship between the interaction between HDL and each one of those four components. Um, so we assess them individually as controlling for age, sex, and race to see which one had the strongest effect on this HDL effect. So the only significant interaction we found was between waist circumference and high HDL having the worst outcomes. And again, this was done by my statisticians and my computer programmers, so I cannot tell you anything more about this. Um, but what this is what it looks like. So if you look at everybody, so remember the people in blue are the low HDL people, the people in green are the intermediate HDL people, and the people in red are the high HDL people. And compare it to by waist circumference. So waist circumference, that's the smallest is shown to the left, the highest shown to the right. So you can see across all ranges of waist circumference, the relationship between the low HDL people and the intermediate HDL people looks to be about the same. It doesn't really vary by waist circumference. But in the high HDL people, it really does. So if you start off with high HDL and your waist circumference is low, you have lower event rates than everybody else. Kind of the classic inverse relationship we're used to seeing. But as your waist circumference increases, the rates not only equal, but then exceed those of the low HDL group. That is a modeling exercise there based on that mathematical equation I showed you. So it really showed us that HDL is complex. And UCLA has a really big HDL research lab run by Alan Fogelman. So we ran all of this data by him and he said, of course, this makes perfect sense. 
So according to Alan, he said, HDL is just a big chameleon molecule. It really is just a big ball of fat that will adopt whatever properties of the environment you put it into. So if you have this big ball of fat and you put it into a healthy fit, non-metabolic syndrome environment, it's gonna perform pretty well. And it's gonna basically take the hit for LDL. So you don't get oxidized LDL. You don't get as much atherosclerosis. You don't get as many events. That makes sense. But if you take this ball of fat and you put it in a very unhealthy pro-inflammatory environment, it then can not only not take the hit for LDL, it then can become a pro-inflammatory molecule itself. So to him, it made perfect sense. To us, it was unusual. But since, as I said, there have been a number of reports showing the same thing. Individuals with very high HDL actually have higher event rates. And what we show is that it's predominantly related to obesity. Then when you go back and think about everything we learned about HDL, we learned from the Framingham Heart Study done in the 50s. That's at a time where very little obesity, very little diabetes, everybody was a little more active. And so if you take HDL and you put it in that healthy population, it's going to look really good. But again, we have a lot more inflammation, a lot more obesity, a lot more diabetes now. So putting a bunch of HDL in that environment may not look so good. Okay, let's look now at CAC as a clinical tool. As I told you earlier, CAC really does identify atherosclerosis and that really is the one answer it gives you. Atherosclerosis, yes or no. If you have CAC, you have atherosclerosis. The more CAC you have, the more atherosclerosis you have. So we looked at that in MESA as well. And as you can see, um, this was, again, from our first seminal paper. If you have CAC 1 to 100, that's the low CAC group, you have lower coronary heart disease event rates, intermediate group 301 to 300, I'm sorry, 101 to 300, they have inter higher cardiovascular event rates. And then the highest event rates are those who have CAC above 300, where the rate was almost 10. Um, hazard ratio for a coronary event. Um, so CAC over 300 in our study was really associated with a very high feature CHG rate. But even in that 101 to 300 group, the, the hazard ratio is 7.73. So that's really high too. And so what we, you know, CAC is not good. You're just not supposed to have calcium in your coronary arteries. And if you do, that means you have atherosclerosis. And as Linda taught me many years ago, when you have a big fluffy lipid plaque next to a really hard calcium um, block, that interface is really unstable. So that's where plaque rupture can happen and cause clinical events. Um, oh, sorry. The age-adjusted prevalence of coronary calcium is different for different race ethnicities. And that was one of the beauties of, of MESAS. You can see that. You can see that in general, the amount of CAC, CAC levels are higher in whites. They are the lowest in African-Americans. So for a given amount of atherosclerosis, African-Americans have lower CAC. It's been shown time and time again. I'm gonna go back to the osteoporosis thing. African-Americans tend to have much higher bone density, much lower vascular calcification density. There's this inverse relationship. We always see that. So, for men tend to have higher CAC levels than women, as you see there. And again, it varies by race ethnicity. 
But whether or not you have higher or lower CAC levels, it didn't matter. It's still a really great predictor in every race ethnic group. So look at for blacks, even with CAC, um, you know, there are lower CAC levels in black patients, but as your CAC level goes up, your coronary event rates go way up. So it's still a great predictor, regardless. Um, that's true for Chinese, Hispanics, whites. It's true for different age groups. It's true for both men and women. And so even if the numbers, the absolute numbers are different, it still is a great discriminator and predictor. And so we can see the 10-year risk. It's a really nice Kaplan-Meier curve. You can see the rates go up by CAC level in every race ethnic group. So then the question becomes like, should everybody get a CAC scan? You can see a lot of people advocating that. Um, so we know that CAC will tell you if I have atherosclerosis, yes or no. Does everyone need that? Well, maybe, maybe not. So you will see a lot of people advertising saying that, yeah, everyone should get this because you just don't know. Um, one of the problems though, is that a lot of these CAC scanners popped up and in various places, so people needed to use them. And so they were advertising them to be used, but I think that was actually before the data suggested whether or not they should be used. So unfortunately, the technology led and then the data followed. It should go the other way around, but that's how it happened here. Now, one of the things, again, it tells you atherosclerosis, yes or no. But you can also kind of get an idea about that by just doing a risk score, right? Like the Framingham risk score or the full cohort risk score. So really only if you can get improvement upon much simpler ways of determining who has atherosclerosis or not, would this make sense? Fortunately, in Mesa, we were able to show that you get additional value from adding CAC to standard risk scores. So this is data looking at the improvement of ASCVD risk assessment in intermediate risk individuals by adding CAC. So you can see, um, so, sorry, very busy uh, legend, but the dark gray line is Framingham risk score alone. And then by adding CAC to that, get improved discrimination and um, prediction. So adding CAC to any risk score, we were able to show you get improved risk prediction, both for incident coronary heart disease and total cardiovascular disease. So how can we use it then? Obviously we can tell you who needs therapy, more aggressive preventive therapy. Um, one of the things we can say is like, who might need more aggressive BP um, blood pressure um, reduction? This is modeling from MESA. Um, the number needed to treat to prevent one atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or heart failure event um, using target BP of 120 or lower as compared to 140 is shown here. If your ASCVD risk is less than 15, um, but your blood and your blood pressure is less than 140, the number needed to treat by getting that more aggressive blood pressure lowering goal is about 55. But as your risk goes up and as you add CAC to that, you, act, you actually can reduce the number needs to treat. So for a systolic blood pressure of less than 160 and a low atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk, if your CAC is equal to zero, you really can't, it's hard to prove that getting a really aggressive blood pressure goal reduces events. 
your CAC is over 100, it's really easy to prove that getting that real aggressive blood pressure goal of less than 120 will reduce events. So you can tailor your therapy or decide how aggressive to be with therapy, perhaps by using CAC. Can CAC inform aspirin decision? Well, we've shown that if you have CAC equals zero and a coronary heart disease risk of less than 10, the number needed to treat to prevent one coronary heart disease event is over 2,000. The number needed to harm to cause one bleeding event is only about 50. So does it make sense in that case? Maybe not. But if you have over there to the right, a CAC that's over 100, doesn't matter what your estimated coronary heart disease risk is, it's always going to favor treating because these are such high-risk people. Um, there's also a question about whether or not it can inform statin decision-making. This is from a data, uh, a paper that I wrote with Bill Greenland and some others um, published in Jack. We said it probably could be useful for deciding who needs statin therapy or not. This was before the most recent cholesterol guidelines came out. And in the most recent cholesterol guidelines, they put exactly this into the guidelines. You can use a CAC score to help you decide who needs statin therapy and who doesn't. For instance, if you have your estimated 10-year risk of less than 5%, the column all the way to the left, statin's not recommended. And CAC score of zero, statin's not recommended. So really, it's hard to imagine that statin would be useful in that population. But if you have a patient population with an estimated risk that's intermediate, but the CAC is positive, that's a patient population you want to use the most aggressive preventive therapy on. There's also, this is data from Mike Blaha, a lot of impetus to think about a CAC equals zero as a way of de-risking individuals. So maybe your predicted 10-year risk is really high, but you have no coronary calcium, it's probably, at least in the short term, safe to say they don't need the most aggressive statin therapy or blood pressure reduction therapy. And this is data that Mike showed. So um, if you have a CAC equals to zero, that is that lowest line. You have much lower cardiovascular risk rate, no matter what your predest probability is. So no matter what your risk score says, what I want to point out from this is that the risk is not zero with CAC equals to zero, but it's significantly lower than those who have the presence of CAC. And again, just showing you from the, the uh, chart we put in our first study, even with CAC equals to zero, there's a measurable event rate in everyone, regardless of race, age, and sex. So it's not zero risk. It just means it's significantly lower risk. And if you get a CAC equals to zero, we don't exactly know what the warranty on that is. Some people say two years, some people say five years, but if your CAC is zero on time zero, it doesn't mean it's gonna always be zero. So you do have to measure it again. All right, future directions. You know, I mentioned this a couple of times, the calcium par paradox. Why is the body depositing calcium in the arteries where it's not needed instead of depositing it in the bones where it is needed? And I showed you from the, our studies, a lot of the inducers of vascular calcification actually inhibit bone calcification. So we don't know why. And if we could figure that out, we could do exactly the opposite. 
get people to lay down more bone in their bones and lessen their arteries. Boy, we could make a lot of money. Um, the other thing is a lot of vascular calcification and aortic calcification share a lot of the same mechanisms. So when you look at a calcified valve that they take out, you see these same kind of nodules that are calcified, same kind of nodules we see in our vascular smooth muscle cells. And what can we do to modify that? That would be huge as well. But what we know now, there's this subpopulation of artery wall cells. It has the capacity to become osteoblast-like cells, producing that ossification of the arteries that Verkov talked about hundreds of years ago. These cells can be induced to become osteogenic by inflammatory stimuli, proatherogenic stimuli, and especially things that we see in atherosclerosis like oxidized lipids. CAC is a really powerful research tool because it's a marker of atherosclerosis. As a clinical tool, it can be very powerful too. It really should be used as a decision aid just for you to, to decide how aggressive to be with your preventive therapies. Everyone always asks, well, how do I get rid of this vascular calcification? And the answer is, once you've made that transition from a vascular smooth muscle phenotype to an osteoblastic phenotype, we've never seen them go back. So we don't know if you can, um, but it's certainly something that I think future studies should look at. I just want to acknowledge my co-investigators at UCLA with MESA, all the MESA participants, and a lot of our partners, like the air pollution study, huge amount of resources went into that. This is a collaboration between NHLBI and the EPA to get a lot of this work done. But thank you again for your attention and I'd be happy to take any questions. Anybody have a question? Thank you, Carol, for a magnificent, magnificent presentation. I have a quick question. I think that your data on HDL and metabolic syndrome is fascinating, showing how counterintuitive it is to think that patients with metabolic syndrome and high HDL will actually have a higher event rate. Has uh, it been looked at to see if there's anything to do with HDL subfractions and to see if it's any difference between the functionality of these? That's a great question, but no. People have done a lot of um, subclass distribution to see if there's something you can predict that would or would not be helpful. And you could probably find every subclass showing positive or negative. The data is all over the place is what I'm trying to say. There's no obvious. Um, right now, we haven't figured out a way to do that. Yeah, we do have a question on um, one of our from one of our virtual viewers. Okay, endurance athletes without traditional risk factors have been found to have higher levels of coronary calcification, yet higher CAC does not pretend a bad prognosis in those athletes. What are your thoughts about the mechanism of coronary calcification in this subset? That's a fantastic question. My co-director of preventive cardiology at UCLA is Greg Fonero, and he's a marathon runner, and I keep telling him how crazy that is. And he keeps arguing with me. So here's my thinking. The big three, oxidative stress, inflammation, cellular damage. Nothing good happens from those three. And that's exactly what you're doing when you're doing endurance running. And those are exactly the things that we see cause induction of vascular calcification, oxidative stress, inflammation, cellular damage. 
So I think you're doing exactly those things that can lead to laying down vascular calcification. But I think you're also getting such great um, cardiovascular fitness with that, which we all know is beneficial, that it does seem to outweigh um, it. But you're exactly right. When I, a lot of patients who have been healthy their whole life, they come to see me because they, my God, someone got a, a random cornucasm score and it's 2000. I like live this perfect life. I do all this great stuff. I eat clean. I do all this exercise. And then I ask him, have you ever been a distance runner? Like, yeah, I do all the time. I'm like, that's why you had this. But the good news is that this is the one subgroup of patients in which coronary calcium does not correlate with increased events. That's a great question. Excellent. We do have one more. Um, Dr. Samity said, fantastic presentation. Thank you. Given that CAC increases after statin therapy, how do you use CAC after the therapy started? That's a great question. You guys have the best questions. That's a great question. The, the answer is you don't. CAC gives you one answer. Coronary atherosclerosis, yes or no, to help you decide on intensity of therapy. And once you get that answer, don't test it again. So what happens is, as you guys know, the CAC score is just looking at density of calcium in the voxels and pixels in your CT scan. And what that is looking at is you're looking at the calcified portion, the non-calcified portion, everything. So what happens when you put someone on a statin, you suck out the cholesterol from that area. All that looks like is you've made the calcium a lot more dense because you haven't changed that with your statin, but you have sucked out the non-calcified portion, the lipid portion. So now your calcium looks more dense, your CAC score will go up. But that is again, when talking back to Linda Deemer, she was a biomechanical engineer. She's like, what you've done is you've made a much more stable interface because that hard calcium next to that big fluffy plaque is just so unstable. If you can suck the cholesterol out of that, your CAC score looks like it goes up, but now you have a much more stable interface. Thank you. One more question from Dr. Samity. What dietary and therapy advice do you have for patients with osteoporosis and a high CAC score? Another great question. So all of these patients are on calcium and vitamin D. Um, we don't recommend that. And I think the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force no longer does for most people because um, when we looked in vitro, when you add calcium and vitamin D to vascular smooth muscle cells, they calcify much more quickly. So again, you just don't know what you're getting when you do that. And I think studies have shown there have been a number of studies of calcium supplementation in postmenopausal women that show increased risk of heart attack. So again, you just don't know what you're getting. Thank you. There's no other questions online. Thanks so much for the invitation. And thank you to my friend for inviting me. I appreciate it. I'm going to invite you to Ellie next time. <laughs> thank you so much.